open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 35. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them, and bring them to the house of Yahweh into one of the chambers and offer them wine to drink. So I took Jeazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of Yahweh, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the sons of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials above the chamber of Maaseah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. And then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine! But they answered, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither, shall, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard. But you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we are living in Jerusalem. Then the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares Yahweh? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you've not listened to me. I have sent to you all my servants the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way, and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I've pronounced against them. Because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered. But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
Father, forgive us for our failures to listen, our failure to disobey, our sin of not listening, our sin of not obeying. Father, our only hope is that you give ears to hear. And praise be to you that in Christ, graciously, you've given your people ears. And yet we struggle, Father. We listen to other voices more eagerly, more obediently than your own, too often. And so, Father, in mercy for the glory of Christ, because He is worthy of our every obedience. Speak now mercifully through Your Word. Your Spirit opens up its truths to us. And conform us to the image of Your Son who fulfilled the law in love to You for Your glory. Conform us to His image now, Father. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. What sort of image pops into your mind whenever I say the following word? Obedience. Do you think of some ugly tyrant king demanding it? Or a beautiful child offering it? When a child says a four-letter word today, it's no longer regarded by many as an act of disobedience. Rather, saying the word of obedience is regarded by some as a four-letter word. I'd venture that the collective moral imagination of our age, subtly, but truly, more often associates obedience with something that the villain demands. And the heroine defies the authority, acts contrary to the commands, to find their identity, to find joy, to find freedom as they follow their own heart. Does this sound like a familiar plot? Disney much? Our age may believe it's progressed a great deal so that such a tale is delighted in today. But this is an ancient lie. It's the one our mother bought into in the garden. And humanity has been dying, literally dying, to believe that lie is true ever since. C.S. Lewis, in the preface he wrote for Milton's Paradise Lost, wrote, Everything except God has some natural superior. Everything except unformed matter has some natural inferior. The goodness, happiness, and dignity of every being consist in obeying its natural superior and ruling its natural inferiors. 
the goodness, happiness, and dignity of every being consistent in obeying its natural superior. Our goodness, happiness, dignity found in obedience? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, What is the duty which God requireth of man? And the answer The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. And that answer is not only true, it's good and it's beautiful. When God says, places everyone, we should not only take our places, we should know that the places we have been assigned are the best possible places for us. We believe it's a good thing whenever the sun keeps its course. But we like to imagine that whenever it comes to our own course, we might know better. We are as foolish as trains thinking, you know, I think I'd be happier off-roading. We want to not simply know our place, we want to make our place. We don't want to be a stagehand. We want to own the stage. We don't want to man the spotlight. We want to be in the spotlight. Of course, a fish can't be happy out of water. But surely man must be happier outside the ethical orbit that he was designed to live in. But if we've bought into the evolutionary myth, you see if man is progressing and making himself and advancing, you see how it runs contrary to all of this. And so a man thinks he would be happier outside his designed orbit. This is why a man thinks he would be happier if he were, say, a woman. And what a man is saying is this: in this is that he would be happier if he were God and God were man. He would be happier if he got to form God in his image rather than taking his place as one formed in the image of God. When a child doesn't obey their parents, what they demonstrate is that they'd really not, rather not have parents. They'd like big people who provide for them, feed them, take care of them, spoil them, praise them, commend them, but not command them. And one reason our children do this is because we model that behavior for them in how we relate to God. The parents cannot get out of their orbit without bringing their little moons into a regular orbit with them. And once they've done so, they've got no grounds to, come to, to look at the, the little moons and asking, why are you guys out of whack? Why are you throwing the tides in all kinds of funky directions. God planted man in a garden of delight. That was his orbit. As long as he obeyed, he stayed. And when he disobeyed, he was driven out to live his days on this cursed crust. And it's that cosmic story that's played out in microcosm with Israel here. It's the story of humanity that's told in microcosm with Israel. Not just of humanity's fall, though, but also of her redemption. Israel's fall looks back to man's fall, and her redemption looks forward to man's redemption. At this juncture, though, our focus 
is on man's fall. Our text opens with Jeremiah being commanded to perform yet another sign act, verses 1 and 2. But unlike the previous sign acts, like the loincloth or the clay pot or the yoke bars, this is not one where Jeremiah's actions will be in the fore, but those of the Rechabites. Who are the Rechabites? Don't be ashamed if you don't know, because they are rarely ever mentioned in Scripture. We do know that they were part of the Kenites. Now, that cleared everything up for you, right? Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a Kenite, Judges 1.16. We learn that the Kenites are associated with the house of Rechab in 1 Chronicles 2.55. So, think of the, the Rechabites as a clan or a tribe of the Kenites. You'll be heading in the right direction. In Judges chapter 1 and chapter 4, we see that the Canaanites resided both in the land allotted to Naphtali and to Judah. And so, as you, as you just read these few instances that speak of the Canaanites and the Rechabites, you get the impression that it's as though they were adopted into Israel, related to her by marriage through Moses, as it were. Jeremiah is commanded to take the Rechabites, bring them within the temple precincts, bring them to a chamber, and offer them wine to drink, verse 5, verse 2. And Jeremiah, in obedience, does just that. He, he doesn't just offer them wine, he sets picture, pitchers before them and uh, cups and bids them drink, verse 5. And in reply, they answer that their patriarch, Jonadab, forbid them to drink wine along with forbidding them to build houses, sow seed, plant a vineyard. Instead, they were to live in tents. So instead of a sedentary life, settling into the cities, tilling the ground, they were to live as sojourners, as nomads within the land. It's very likely that the Kenites, whenever Jonadab gave this command, were already tent dwellers, along with all the Kenites. For instance, in Judges chapter 4, we see the Syrian general Sisera, having been defeated in battle, fleeing. And he comes to the tent of one Jael. You remember the story? Jael was the wife of Heber, the Kenite. And thinking he's found a place of refuge while he is asleep, Jael takes a tent peg and kills him. And then in Deborah's song celebrating this victory, she says, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women. Most blessed. You see, that's peculiar. And so as Israel begins settling into the land, it appears that the Kenites remained sojourners. But what happens with Jonadab then is that what has seemingly been their custom now becomes their covenant obligation, a binding oath, a command that they, they take with that kind of seriousness of binding loyalty. And so, I hope you see now why Jeremiah, at this juncture, with chapter 35, has taken us back several, at least a decade, 
to the reign of Jehoiakim. Remember, we were with Zedekiah, and now we've moved back. Why? Well, in chapter 34, we saw covenant infidelity. We saw Israel breaking covenant. Now you see an instance of covenant being kept. But why may have Jonadab have commanded his sons not to drink wine, build houses, till the ground, have a vineyard, but to live in tents? There's no way we can be certain. None at all. But there are two clues that I think we'd be remiss to ponder, and I do think they say something. The first is that Jonadab is almost certainly the Jehonadab that was in alliance with Jehu. Remember, Jehu was that king that God raised up, slew Ahab and all the prophets of Baal. And in 2 Kings 10, 15-17, after he's dealt with Ahab, we read, When he, Jehu, departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. He met him coming to meet him. Isn't this peculiar? Jonadab shows up out of nowhere. He's never introduced prior to this. But here's Jehu. He's just slain Ahab. And all of a sudden, Jehonadab's coming out to greet him. And he greeted him and said to him, this is Jehu greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? Jehu evidently knows something about Jehonadab. And what Jehu's about now, word is out. And for some reason he thinks, my heart is with Jehonadab. Is Jehonadab with me? What is it about the two that there would seem to be an alliance, you see? And Jehonadab answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, come with me and see my zeal for Yahweh. I think that's the clue as, as why he would, there was something about Jehonadab known. That Jehu says, see my zeal for Yahweh, that would be appealing to him. So he had him ride in his chariot, and when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had wiped them out according to the word of Yahweh that he spoke to Elijah. And then in chapter 23 of that, uh, verse 23 of that same chapter of 1 Kings 10, we see that Jehonadab is also there with Jehu when he has the prophets of Baal slaughtered. What's striking in all of that is that Jehonadab shows up on the scene and he exits. That's what we know about him. In the slaughter of the remaining family of Ahab and of the prophets of Baal. And it's assumed by Jehu that Jehonadab would be in line with all of this. And the second thing that's telling as we look at this is notice the structures, the, the structure of the commands and the promise given here. The command and promise of Jonadab. You shall not. You shall not. You shall not. And then you have a positive command with a promise. Does this sound familiar? I'm Yahweh your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not. You shall not. And then... You come to a positive command, and it's the positive command that carries a promise. And in the case of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, it's almost 
the same promise. Honor your father and your mother. What is it that the the Rechabites are doing? They're honoring their father. That your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. Now, the promise as it's given in the Ten Commandments is attached to that particular command. But the same promise is made in relation to obedience to the law as a whole several times. Deuteronomy 4.40 Therefore you shall keep His statutes and His commandments which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for all time. Deuteronomy 32, 46-47 Take to heart all the words which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is, by no, empty, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. The place where this kind of language is most extensively impact, though, is Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you today, by loving Yahweh your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and to possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live Loving Yahweh your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. Why may Jonadab have made this command to his children? We can't be certain, but these two things I think are very telling. Perhaps it is that He sees as Israel settles in, she settles into Canaanite idolatry. And so he wants them to remain sojourners. Perhaps it is that he sees wine and vineyards as associated with the Canaanite fertility cults, Baal worship. We can't be certain, but these things are suggestive. And in all these things, the Rechabites have obeyed, verses 8 through 11, for roughly 250 years they've obeyed these commands. The Rechabites in some way make you think of the Nazarites. You remember the Nazarites in Numbers chapter 6, they also uh, would abstain from wine, but they did so for a measured period of time. There was an end date to the oath that they took. There was an exceptional exception in Samson, who was to keep basically a Nazarite vow for his whole life, but he took exception to that. The Rechabites, however, as a group, 
for over 200 years have kept these commands. And then it seems that they're eager to communicate to Jeremiah, if you think our dwelling in this city is any indication that we're willing to compromise, the only reason we're here is because Nebuchadnezzar. We are tent dwellers still. We're just living here because of Nebuchadnezzar and the threat of the Chaldean army. The point in all of this is not to commend the specific actions of the Rechabites. It's to commend their obedience. Teetotaling in and of itself is no more righteous than tent dwelling. It's funny, there was a movement, there still is, it goes under a different name, but there was a teetotaling movement in uh, Britain. They were known as the Rechabites, but uh, while they were teetotalers, they didn't live in tents. Um, They didn't carry it that far. What's, What's commendable here about the Rechabites is their loyalty, their fidelity, their obedience. To to clarify, as far as making the precise point that's wanting to be made here, to get it crystal clear, if you had to choose as an illustration of what the point is between a drunk who was obedient and a abstainer who or uh, who's um, a sober man who's disobedient, if you had to choose between the drunk obedient guy or the sober disobedient guy, as far as what, which one illustrates the point here, it's the drunk obedient guy. That's, that's the aim here, is to emphasize their obedience and put it into stark contrast with that of Judah. In light of this, this word now comes to Jeremiah Concerning Judah, the Rechabites listen, will not, verse 12, Judah listen and receive instruction. Jonadab commanded his sons and they obeyed. Yahweh has spoken to the son that he called out of Egypt and he has not obeyed. The Rechabites listen and obey their earthly, fallible father. Israel has failed to listen to her heavenly, infallible Lord. What voices are we more eager, more zealous to hear and obey than the voice of our God. Might it be within the sphere of politics? Health. Fashion. Business. Technology. Do you demonstrate the same kind of earnestness to hear and obey God's law as you do the voices of authority, the earthly voices of authority in these other spheres. Or consider what groups listen better to fallible men than we do our infallible God. Consider the groups that are out there that listen to wicked men more earnestly and zealously then we listen to our holy God. 
no one should excel the saints in obedience. Not because of who we are in and of ourselves, but because of who our God is. He's the sovereign Lord of heaven. He is our Redeemer and Savior. He is the God of truth. He is the mutable, faithful God whose covenant promises are sure and certain. While Jonadab may have repeatedly told his sons this command, he's long been dead. And still they keep his words. But Yahweh is the living and eternal God who has spoken persistently, consistently, again and again, warning warning them of their sin, calling them back. Verse 15, God's desire for obedience and is persistently warning the people is highlighted in Jeremiah chapter 7 where God spoke against them continuing through the formality of all these sacrifices while disregarding the law as a whole. He said to them, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them. Obey my voice, and I will be your God. And you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their own evil hearts. And they went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers." Well, Jonadab gave a reason for obedience based upon human wisdom. God extends a promise based on divine right and covenant. Whenever Jonadab said, do this, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn, he was speaking like the father who says, I want you to go to this certain school. And pursue this kind of degree because I think that really will work out well for you in the future. God is doing something more than offering wisdom based upon probabilities here. The land is His to give. And it is theirs for sure if they will but obey. Obedience to Jonadab's command is no absolute guarantee that they will abide in the land. But obedience to God's commands comes with absolute certainty. Promises are incentives to obedience. How often are we more eager to obey the commands of men with their attached promises rather than those of God? We not only, you see, ignore God's commands, we ignore His promises. Or we think we can ignore the commands and still get the promises. Or worse yet, we think we can get better than what God has promised by means of disobedience. The day you eat of the fruit, you will not surely die. You'll get even more. You'll be like God. Rather than obeying God's truth, we buy into the serpent's lie. Thinking we can get more by disobedience than He has promised 
by obedience. Rather than obey the God whose law is true and whose promises are sure, it is though we turn to shady pop-up ads to buy some knockoff product made in China. How foolish of us to trust the hiss of the serpent rather than the roar of the Lion of Judah. It is God we should trust. It is God we should fear. God we should obey. God we should believe. Spiritually, we have selective hearing and selective memories, which is a soft way of putting it. We have sinful hearing and sinful memories. We so easily recall lyrics to a song or movies, uh, lines from a movie. But whenever it comes to memorizing a portion of Scripture, that's thought so taxing, laborious. How many of man's warnings do we heed every day, just readily? I mean, don't want to disobey that. How bad things would go for me if I didn't heed that warning, right? How many of, of the world's promises do we latch on to and, and obey so that we can have them without any question, joyfully going along with them? God's commands are life. His promises are sure. Listen, incline your ear, obey. Thomas Watson said, there is love in every command. As if a king should bid one of his servants dig in a gold mine and then take the gold of himself. Scripture should be the song that we have stuck in our heads. It should be His promises should be our muse. His commands, our meditation, day and night. Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules. That Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land you are going over to possess it. That you may fear Yahweh your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and all his commands which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as Yahweh the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your mind with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The consequences for not listening are as devastating as the promises for listening are glorious. Verse 17. God will bring upon them all the disaster He has pronounced against them. What disaster? The disaster spoken of in the law. The disaster spoken of extensively in Deuteronomy 28 should they not be faithful to covenant. The disaster that Jeremiah has spoken of again and again and again. The disaster that the prophets are chock full of. And not part of it, God will bring all 
the disaster he's pronounced upon them. Plugging one's ears does not make impotent the voice of the one who spoke stars into existence. I didn't hear you is not an excuse. It is our sin. It is our accusation. The accusation against us. It is our crime. God has spoken and man has not listened. And because God has spoken and man has not listened, God will bring about what He has spoken in a way that man cannot ignore. He will bring upon the the disaster that He's pronounced against them. God's judgment is His unignorable word on those who have ignored His word. Sinner, if you will not hear the bleeding of the Lamb crucified for sinners, you will hear the roar of the lion in judgment against your sins. If you will not hear God's word of grace, Christ crucified for sinners, you will hear that very Christ speak in judgment on your souls. In contrast to what's happening to Judah, you have this promise extended to the Rechabites. Not for obedience that's really been offered so much to God as to their father. And yet, God graciously says, because you've obeyed obeyed Jonadab, Jonadab, he will not lack a man to stand before me. And this word stand before is most often used of one who ministers before God, sometimes of the prophets, most frequently of the priests. How's that fulfilled? I don't have a clue. But, note this, Judah is cursed because she did not obey, and the Rechabites, who are not strictly Israel, are blessed because they did. In the heart of that portion of Romans, where Paul talks about the hardening of Israel and the grafting in of the Gentiles, he says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary contrary people. So perhaps there's a bit of a shadow of that here. And with that, with this gracious pronouncement of blessing on the Rechabites, in light of the the gospel as it's seen in that passage in Romans, I hope it's very clear to you what this text is not saying. It is not telling us that we are saved by our works. 
there is not the slightest inkling of justification by works to be gleaned from this text. It is too late for justification by works. We forfeited the garden by our disobedience. How could we possibly conceive of meriting heaven then by our obedience? Here, God is speaking to His redeemed covenant people. They were not to obey the law in promise of God redeeming them. It is because He had already redeemed them that they were to obey the law. And if this is true of Israel and her redemption from Egypt, how much more is it true of us who have tasted the fullness of what's been foreshadowed here? Yes, the law is to lead us to Christ, as Paul says in Galatians, but then Christ also leads us to the law. John Murray said, we are not saved by obedience to the law, but we are saved unto it. Or John Calhoun said, we obey not for life, but we obey from life. Whenever God gives us new hearts in the new covenant, what is the nature of those hearts? Jeremiah 30, 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with, my house, with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's the absence of new covenant hearts among those who profess Christ that James addresses with words like these. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. James 1.22 or James 2.14-19 What good is it, my brothers, if one, someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith Not faith, but that faith that says, I have faith and not works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Do you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, the proof that you've really heard the gospel is that you now hear the law. Jesus said, if we love him, we will keep his commands. John 14. In John 15, he said, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do we need any greater promise? Can there be any greater promiser? So let us then cry out like the psalmist. 
Take not the words of truth utterly out of my mouth. For my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I shall walk in a wide place. For I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings. And shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments. Which I love I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Let's pray. Father, not in any effort at self-righteousness, not in any hope of meriting anything from your hands, but as understanding we have been Freely redeemed in Christ. Counted righteous and just by Him. And then that your law comes to us as grace on top of all that grace. For our joy and our good. May we then lift up our hands to your commandments, not because we worship them, but because we worship you. May we love them, not because we simply love them in and of themselves and in any way how they reflect on us, but because we love you and we want to reflect your glory and goodness. We want to reflect the beauty of the one who redeemed us by his obedience to the law in love to you. So we praise you. Thank you that in Christ and the redemption and righteousness we have in Him, we're not only declared freely and graciously, not only declared righteous, we're being conformed to the image of that One who's altogether lovely. And we plead You would do this, Father, for Your honor and glory. Give us hearts that love You and love your law, and walk in your ways and your truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.